AHA Process webinar podcast series. In this installment, AHA Process author and consultant Bethany Tucker discusses ways that motivation can be enhanced. Thank you to all the participants for joining us today. Um, Today we will be talking about motivation. I jokingly tell people regularly that I began studying the topic of motivation about eight years ago, and I'm writing a book on the topic, and I will finish it as soon as I'm motivated. And, of course, the reality is that as I began studying the topic of motivation, I realized that um, I thought I would find the key to unlocking the door to motivation. And motivation is one of the resources that Dr. Payne talks about in her work. And uh, we, we all agree, of course, that individuals who succeed, succeed because they have resources. And one of those very important resources is motivation. And I, uh, as an educator for years, I thought this is something that students should either have or uh, if not, they should develop it themselves. But um, actually, motivation is a resource that can be either enhanced or thwarted by one's environment. So again, when I began the study, I began by um, reading about intrinsic motivation, extrinsic motivation, rewards. And I thought uh, this was all that I would need to read about. But I began to realize as time went on that self-regulation, support systems, impulsivity control, possible sales, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, were also critical components. And I eventually realized that I was overwhelmed with the topics. So I developed two goals. Number one, my number one goal is to create a mental model of motivation. Um, I began to realize that because the topic of motivation goes in so many directions, I didn't have a clear image in my head of what it looked like. So goal number one, to create a mental model so that when I hear the word motivation, I will have a picture in my head. Secondly, my second goal was to identify strategies to enhance motivation to achieve. So uh, the session today, this one-hour overview, will be just at an overview of the various topics related to a mental model and strategies for motivation. Okay. Now, I have learned that there are two major camps of theories and theorists. The first camp believes that we are motivated based on wants, needs, and desires. The second camp of theorists believes that our beliefs and values motivate us. But I have discovered that both camps agree that our motivation to achieve can be or is influenced by our environments. Our motivation to achieve is either enhanced or thwarted by environmental factors. So the question becomes, what do unmotivated students look like? And please realize that I'm using the word students here to include everyone with whom we're working. Our students could be a significant other. It could be a, a colleague, a coworker. It could be uh, someone in the community. So when I use the word students today, please interpret that to mean anyone who is in a position to learn, and that's all of us. So what do these students look like? 
theorists, especially Wiggins and her colleagues, have written many articles indicating that students are motivated when they look at a task and ask themselves, can I do this? If they answer yes, they will be more, more motivated. If they feel competent to achieve, then they will be motivated. And if they feel that they're capable of achieving, they will be motivated. As I read over the years about motivation, I finally realized that our students who answer no to that question remind me of the scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz, because we know that the, wizard, the scarecrow in this story had a brain, but he thought that he didn't. And some of our students believe they don't have a brain um, due to either competence or self-efficacy. And I read further, Wiggins and others, and began to realize that we have some students who are just afraid. Wiggins' question is that, uh, do I, what would I have to give up? What, would I, what challenges would I face? And our students who are afraid to face those challenges um, are our Cowardly Lion students. Okay. These Cowardly Lion students have a fear of failing, a fear of asking questions, and some of them have absolutely learned to be helpless. There are many, many other fears, but these are the three that we'll focus on very briefly today. And you probably have already guessed what the third category is. These are the students whose heart is just not in their work. Wiggins and other researchers say that the third question that we ask ourselves when we face this task is, do I want to do this? And sometimes the answer is no. And when we have students who consistently answer no to that question, then we have our third category of unmotivated students. So um, if we can help these students to understand that they do have a heart for their work, for their teachers, and for their peers, they will be more motivated. So this is uh, the, the general outline of the three categories of our students, again, students meaning anyone we know, who might lack motivation. And the reality is the scarecrow would still be hanging on a post if it were not for Dorothy. So Dorothy symbolizes our relationship. And of course, if you prefer to be called Dan, that would be just fine too. A strategy that I often recommend when I conduct workshops on motivation is for that uh, caring adult to have their students dedicate a project or a test performance or for your colleagues and coworkers, this might be a job application to dedicate their performance to someone who cares about them and supports their efforts. Researchers have found that when we do this, um, I, I see a question about steel slides. I'm not quite sure I, am, I, I understand that, but I'll get to it as soon as I can. Um, but when we have our uh, students to dedicate projects to someone who cares about them, then uh, every time they pick the project up, then they will think about this person. And if we have students to dedicate their project to someone who cares about them, and they are saying, uh, well, nobody cares, then we know that we have yet another issue in terms of relationship building. We need to actually find someone 
who can prove to that student that they do indeed care. Now, going back to our scarecrow students, there are strategies that we can use to help these students to realize that they do have a brain. Um, one strategy that we can use is whenever we assign a task, and again, the task could be a job application, is to not only tell the person what needs to be done, but also why and how. The reality is that we often assume that other people know why we're asking them to perform a task and how to go about it. Um, one example that I share when I conduct workshops is from my own personal experience. When I was a very young child, mom called me into the kitchen. There was a stick of butter on the stove melting. And she, in a hurry, said to me, watch the butter until it melted. Well, she assumed that I knew why and how. So I stood there, and I watched the butter until it melted, and then I went out to play. And when the house filled with smoke, she very angrily called me back in and said, I thought I told you to watch the butter until it melted. And I said, I did. And the reality was that she assumed that I knew the why and the how. And there are many examples that we could share that apply to adults as well. Even as adults, we have often been asked, uh, to do things without knowing why and how. And when we don't know the procedure or the why, then sometimes we might think, as the scarecrow did, well, I just don't have a brain, or my brain is simply not working. Okay. Um, another strategy that we can use with our scarecrow students is whenever we give them tasks, to uh, give them the directions not only with words but also with pictures. Research has uh, pointed out that there are separate storage areas in our brains for visual and auditory information. And this is really exciting because I can store lots of auditory information, but if I have a picture to observe at the same time, then I can literally double the capacity. And this applies not only to young students, um, but to adult students as well. In fact, I conducted a motivation workshop a few weeks ago, and uh, a group of principals created a visual for their teachers to help them to understand when they should send the student to the office. And they drew a thermometer, and they said, when the thermometer gets up to 40, you're still cool, just wait. And they had a picture for each step of the way, and it was really exciting. And the teacher said, ah, this, this helps me to understand. So this applies to adults as well. Now again, some of our scarecrow students lack skill, but some of them simply lack a sense of self-efficacy. And we know if you would read these two scenarios, if we have student A who believes that she was born with an IQ of 120 and it will never change, but student B who believes that her current IQ is 100 but it can improve, when we ask the question, which one will work harder, student D is the one who works harder. So when we can help people to understand that your, our intelligence is not fixed, that it grows, it changes, the more we use our brain, the smarter we get. Carol Dweck is the one who created much of this work. And she, uh, you might want to make a note, if you're interested, to read about incremental brain growth. And one quote that she shares with us 
is that even Einstein was an Einstein until he worked hard. I also love this quote from Henry Ford. If you think you, you can do a thing, you think you can't do a thing, you're right. And he, what he's saying is that we have some students who think they can't, therefore they don't. Okay. Now, of course, we could talk quite a bit more about our Cowardly Lion students. And when I conduct an all-day workshop, I do just that. But in our brief period of time, we'll move on to our uh, Cowardly Lion students. We, we just talked about our Scarecrow students, rather. We're now moving to Cowardly Lion students. And this is fascinating research from Robert Johnson, Johnston in his book, Opening Minds. He says that when children learn to view the world as a hostile place, they are predisposed to interpret others' actions as hostile and to place blame. Now his book goes on to explain to the, the fact that these children grow up to be adults who have viewed the world in a hostile place, and they continue, even as adults, to interpret anything or many things that are done and said as a personal affront to them. And one way we can help them is to say to them, you know, I really don't think that other person had any intentions of belittling you or hurting you and helping them to understand that um, our, we choose our lens through which we view the world. And some people view the world through a very harsh lens. But this helps us to understand why some individuals um, seem to be ready to fight all the time because every, they interpret so much of their environment as being hostile. Okay? We also know that all human beings are striving to move from a lack of confidence to confident. And many times we depend on other people to help us to be confident. And I, as a, a caring person, might actually foster this approach by saying, oh, I'm so proud of you. But our goal is to have that person to learn to feel confident on their own without having to come to me or to you or anyone else for affirmation and to simply become a confident person uh, without our help. And one way, one strategy that we can use in, in trying to foster this sense of confidence is to provide process feedback. This is fascinating work. Again, you can Google process feedback and read quite a bit about it. But when I get process feedback, I will say, I noticed that you had your list of uh, questions ready for the interview. Good work. I noticed that you, were, uh, you arrived for the interview 10 minutes early. I think that was a great idea. And what we're doing is we're pointing out to them the process that they followed so that they themselves become confident and they no longer need to go to anybody else to say, well, I'm proud of you. Another fascinating uh, research study uh, that relates to our Cowardly Lion students is to help individuals to understand that their behavior drives their thinking. If I stand straight, if I look people in the eyes, if I look confident, then I will be more confident. If I smile often, I'm happy. And the research also says if I smile at other people, other people are happier also. And this is really critical research for individuals who are applying for jobs, who are applying for college, who are taking tests in school.
um, we work with individuals who are afraid of failing. Research tells us that when children are punished for making mistakes, they become fearful of trying anything new. And again, these children grow up to be teenagers, middle school students, adults who are still afraid of failing because throughout their lives when they made a mistake, they were punished. And we can only imagine if every time we make a mistake, we're punished for making that mistake, then we eventually just, we learned that in order to avoid being punished, we avoid doing anything. And this is why we have some students who um, almost refuse to even begin a project because in their minds they're thinking, why, why should I try? I'll make a mistake and I will be punished for it. Um, I skipped a slide. A strategy that we can use. And, and this strategy sounds so simple that it's almost uh, misleadingly simple. But I have tried this myself with students when we ask, OK, what did you learn from the mistake? You know what? We all make mistakes. Tell me what you learned from it. I, I can see a change in their expression. Their eyes light up, and they suddenly realize, I can make mistakes, and I won't be punished for them. For our students who have learned to be helpless, we can reverse learned helplessness by reminding them about positive previous experiences. This is from Seligman, who actually developed a program that is used by the US Army. Um, and if we say to a student, you know, I know that you passed your, that test for your driver's license. If you uh, pass that test for your driver's license, then you can do this. You can apply for this job. You can accomplish whatever you want to accomplish. Okay. I welcome. I will take up. Uh, just. I will pause here for just a second to say, I would love for anyone who is interested to chat with us. Um, we we do try to uh, tweet as often as possible, and I would love to hear from you. Okay. So we are ready now to talk about our 10 man students. And I'm sure if we asked for a show of hands, we would see many hands up from individuals who are saying, I work with people, I work with students, or I work with adults who just don't seem to have the heart in their work. And again, research tells us that all of these individuals, barring exceptions, of course, were born with their heart in their work. I've never seen a two-year-old who didn't want to explore, and when we attempt uh, to help them, they, they will say, no, me do it. They want, their heart is in their work. But again, to review, um, research tells us that environmental factors can actually thwart that motivation and uh, make us feel that our heart is not in our work. So let's look at our 10-man students. Our task is to connect these students to themselves. When I conduct an all-day workshop, we talk for quite a bit about really getting in, in touch with ourselves. And this, doesn't, this is not implying that we're uh, going to another planet. We're simply saying many individuals really don't know and don't understand themselves, don't understand not only school personnel, but bosses, colleagues, and also the disciplines and the tasks. One strategy that we use in schools, and this could also apply to community work as well, is to de clearly define the terms and tasks that we're using. I can only imagine how an under-resourced student 
who finally makes it to college might feel when he's told, well, we signed you up for physics and statistics. And some of them have no earthly idea what that means. But when they walk in and see a purpose statement for the discipline, then they begin to think, OK, I, I understand why I'm here. And this, again, could apply to um, all areas, not just the classroom. An example, language arts, the purpose of language arts is to communicate. And this totally reframes how we view our discipline. Then we can say to students, you have a filing cabinet in your head. It's labeled language art. Go, go to that filing cabinet and open the drawer. And this drawer is labeled with a certain label. And this helps give order to everything that we learn in the classroom. When I began studying the topic of motivation, one concept that I expected to encounter on every other page was the concept of rewards. But I have learned that rewards actually play a very small part in uh, motivation. What I have discovered is that rewards used appropriately can be effective, but used inappropriately can actually extinguish motivation. Um, what, what I have read is that celebratory rewards are effective. When we can say to a person, you completed your first interview. Um, you know, you're telling me you didn't get the job, you're upset, but let's think about what you have accomplished and let's celebrate. Celebratory rewards are more effective than contingency rewards, which would um, fall into the category of, if you do this, then I will reward you because I'm in control. But when we celebrate, then these are highly effective and can help a person's heart to be in their work. Okay. When I work with student teachers, we develop lesson plans that revolve around the work plan celebrate uh, rotation. And we uh, use the word work, and we don't apologize for it because one goal is to help a person to acquire work as a driving force. Again, celebratory rewards can improve attitudes about content. And that content can be classroom. It can be community. Um, also, sometimes people need help in knowing how to talk to their peers. How do I talk to other people? Um, when uh, if, if I don't know formal language, I might say to a person, well, that idea was stupid. And I have no way of knowing that that's an inappropriate way to express my feelings. And we can help individuals by teaching them what to say to other people when we agree with them, what to say to them when we disagree with them. And when we put students in groups, we actually say, you will each share your opinion. Then you will look at that person and you will say, I agree because or I disagree because. And this is helping our 10-man students to feel that they fit in. They don't feel that they have actually insulted someone. So very quickly, we will now explore the final parts of this mental model. We know that our characters uh, must follow the yellow brick road. And this yellow brick road um, represents self-regulation. Our characters had to keep going under their own wheel. And 
I was stunned with this particular stat. Only 40% of doctoral students, after completing their coursework, ever complete their dissertations. Um, and research is very clear in this area. These 40, these 60% who do not complete their dissertations are frequently the ones, frequently, not always, but often the ones who simply uh, don't say to themselves every morning, this is what I need to do next, this is how I need to accomplish it, and they don't have self-regulatory skills. This is a list of self-regulatory skills. We won't talk about each of these, I promise. We could, and when I conduct workshops, we focus on a number of them. But individuals who are going down the yellow brick road toward, toward their goal need these self-regulatory skills in order to keep going. And we have some students who drop off the road, and we think they're not motivated. But the reality is they don't know how to get organized, so they can't find the work that they've done. They don't know how to sort what is important from what is not important. So they're exhausted listening to everything that we tell them on equal value. So again, we could talk about this for quite a while. But you'll notice that one self-regulatory skill is to control impulsivity. Ruby Fjordstein and other researchers help us to understand that impulsive people sometimes think it's a waste of time to get ready. They just jump into the middle of a task. Um, I, I must admit that I, I have been rather impulsive myself. And an, uh, uh, an experience that I had when I was in college, when my professor was talking about references and citations, I thought that sounded like a terrible waste of time. So I just wrote my paper and made up the quote. I know now that was quite illegal. but. I went to the library, copied the names of some books, turned my paper in, typed those book names and authors at the end of my paper, turned it in. But I was really, really lucky. I worked in the library, and when I saw my professor in the library checking our references, I just hid all of those books. But if I had known how to control impulsivity, writing that research paper would have been easier because I would have followed the steps. We, have, we work with individuals who have not learned that self-regulatory skill. Now, along the way to, um, the, uh, to our goal, there will be flying monkeys and poppy seeds. And research makes it clear that when we talk with students and warn them that there will be life changes, life changes, students, and there will be derailments. Then when they do encounter a life change or when they encounter a derailment, um, then they're, they're prepared for it. They don't panic. Some students will find themselves applying for a job or applying for college, and they encounter a challenge, and they quit because they had not even thought it out the fact that this could happen to them. Uh, just a, a word of warning can be helpful. Carol Dweck has a wonderful strategy. She has her college students write a letter to her from 10 years in the future telling her about an obstacle they faced and how they overcame it. I think this is uh, really a great strategy because it's teaching people that they will face obstacles, and it gives them a chance to think about how they might overcome them. We could use this with applying for a job. We could use this in many areas of life. 
Now, I wish I could think of a better word to use than witches, but along the way there are people who are willing to help us. And the reality is that some students will not avail themselves to help. For one, one reason is that in some environments, you're considered weak if you ask for help. And the message to people can be, do you know, asking for help is a sign of strength. Because if you come from a low-income environment or, or an under-resourced environment, um, then, then you, you might be the very ones who might need help, but you have to be strong. And when you, when you feel that asking for help is a sign of strength, then you will be more likely to ask for it. Uh, again, this is Carol Dweck's work. And uh, she has discovered that if you believe that your intelligence is something basic, or you might believe that you can change your level of, of intelligence, in this particular study, when people were asked, do you, I apologize, um, do you want to pursue a difficult task? Or do you want to go to tutorials in college? The students who believed that they could change their intelligence did ask for help. The ones who thought their intelligence was fixed said, no, there's no reason. Now, as we approach our final minutes of this discussion, we do need to talk about Emerald City, because Emerald City is, is our goal. And when we think about our future selves, we also have to think about possible selves. The reality is that we work with individuals who don't think it would ever be possible for them to become um, a social worker, or, or for them to become an educator, or for them to become a doctor or a lawyer. They think that's for other people. And there is a program which you might want to research titled Possible Selves Program. And it, uh, it, designed, it has designed a way for individuals, for us to help individuals um, to realize that they do have possible futures. Another strategy is to have students actually interview someone who graduated from high school or college or who applied for the job, etc. And through this activity, they can learn that you know this other person faced challenges as well. This other pe person had in, uh, family members who really didn't support them, and then they no longer feel alone. A, a strategy that I think would be fun would be to ask, what would you try to do if you knew you couldn't fail? And then some, uh, some of our students will tell us uh, or give us an idea as to what a possible sell for that student might be. So when we think about Emerald City, we're thinking about possible selves and future selves, their own future story. Um, I love to have students actually write a book, write their own biography about their own future self. And uh, research says that this can be very enlightening and very powerful. Now, we can't forget the wizard. We often feel that the wizard, we often hear that the wizard was actually uh, a fake, but the truth is that the wizard gave our characters exactly what they had all along. They were intrinsically motivated. Um, Dorothy's heart was already at home, and the uh, scarecrow 
already had a brain. The wizard gave him a diploma, indicating something he had all along. He gave the tin man a chicken heart that reminded him that he had a heart all alone, along, and he gave the lion a medal. So this is our goal. Our goal is to help individuals to find that intrinsic motivation. And finally, the real hero of the story is Toto, um, a researcher whose name is Chexit Mahaya, estimated that we can process about 126 bits of information per second. He was the first to use the term flow. And he said flow occurs when we are focusing most of our available bits of processing power toward a task. And this is our goal with students and family members to help them to actually focus on the task and um, to process as many bits of information toward that task. This is why researchers are now telling us that we sometimes hear individuals talk about multitasking. Researchers pretty much agree that there's no such thing. What happens when we're calling ourselves multitasking is that we're actually dividing our processing power, and the more I focus on irrelevant activities around me, the fewer bits of information I can focus on my task. So uh, this is our very, very brief uh, mental model of motivation. I talked really, really fast, and my goal was to share an example of a strategy for each. Um, I, I would now like to open the session for uh, questions. We have about 20 minutes left, and uh, I will answer any questions that you have. I have a question uh, who asked, okay. would, you encourage, would you encourage students to self-identify their character and then strategies that would be effective asking us to use those particular ones? Okay, great question. And the question is, um, would, might it be helpful to encourage students to identify that character? That, that is a great question. And I have worked uh, with a limited number of students who have been identified as lacking motivation in an alternative school. And what we did for them, we didn't really talk about the yellow brick road. We didn't talk about um, all of the other characters. We simply talked about the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, and uh, the Scarecrow. And we, we explained to them that these characters had lost motivation to achieve. And what we say to them is that, you know, one on Monday, I might fit into this category. On Wednesday, I might fit into another category. But throughout the day, throughout the year, um, I, I fit into many of them. And I, I think we have found that it's beneficial when they realize that they themselves might hop back and forth. Um, but it, we, we have also found it very helpful that they learn that, um, that these are general categories. And we have decided that after we work with these students uh, after six weeks, then we will start talking about the other components of motivation. We'll start talking about the yellow brick road, for example. Um, I see Bill's question, book suggestion. Um, there are many, many, many. Um, I began by reading Daniel Pink's book, Drive, and I discovered that Daniel Pink made a fortune by uh, elaborating on three of the um, 
environmental factors uh, of, of drive, one being autonomy. He talks quite a bit about how autonomy can motivate a person. Um, which is why rewards, and he talks a lot about the fact that rewards can actually extinguish motivation. You might want to start with Daniel Pink. From there, I would go to Carol Dweck. There is a wonderful book, uh, The Anthology of Motivation, which is about, <laughs> it feels, when I'm carrying it with me, it feels like it's 5,000 pages long. But it includes the most up-to-date articles on uh, motivation. Uh, Steinberg, Wigman, uh, many, many of the authors. Um, I, I have a, a whole list of others, but those, those are the two I would start with. Thank you for that question. Um, I see a question here from Rita um, asking you to expand on controlling impulsivity. Okay, great question, uh, Rita. Um, impulsivity control is one of those yellow brick road bricks um, Ruby Feuerstein and others help us to understand that babies are born impulsive. We were all impulsive when we were born. And those of us who had a caring adult along the way who said to us, no, honey, I'm sorry, you can't get out another toy until you put that one away, no dessert until you eat your vegetables, uh, these people are teaching us to control impulsivity. Now, some who grow up without that caring adult uh, remain impulsive, and impulsive individuals um, often just jump into the middle of a task. Teachers frequently tell me, even at the college level, when we talk about telling students the steps to follow, and, and giving students steps to follow is a really great strategy. But some, some will say, I give them the steps and they still don't follow them. Well, what is happening is that our impulsive students just think, well, steps one, two, and three are a waste of time. I don't need to get organized. So they start with step five. Um, in people who have learned to control impulsivity say to themselves, I need to put the paper down on the floor before I start painting. Impulsive people will say, well, I'll paint and I'll be careful. And then they have to spend twice as much time cleaning the floor. And these are our students who don't complete their work, and they're the adults who unfortunately sometimes get into trouble. Um, I, I don't know if that was helpful or not, but controlling impulsivity is something that many of us learned early on. For those of us who did not, it's never too late. Um, but it, it, is, it is a little more challenging as an adult. But we can teach ourselves. We, we can develop. Um, coping strategies. Okay. Um, okay, I see Rhonda's question. You were saying that Toto was directing Dorothy to different tasks. I like that. Um, Toto really is, and, and many researchers agree, that Toto is indeed the, um, the star. He's the hero of the story. Because without Toto, almost nothing else would happen when you stop and think about Everything, Tucker was the one who went to bark at uh, the, the characters and drew Dorothy's attention to them. And I think he really did keep the story going. But in terms of motivation, I think he plays yet another role. And that role is that he shows us what, what our goal is in life. 
our goal is to become so involved in everything that we're doing that um, other things can happen around, happen around us, and we don't even see them. We don't even notice them. And that is what checks at Mahaya calls flow. But uh, I like your point also. Stacy, uh, oh my goodness. You know, Stacy, when I read your name, I wondered, could you possibly <laughs> be the same Stacy I taught 21 years ago? Thank you. Thank you for your identifying yourself. And you have made my day. Um, Bill asked, name of Carol Dweck's book again. Um, Bill, her book, her first book, the one that I read, was titled Mindset. I understand that she has written a follow-up to that book, which I have not read, but um, I'm sure if, if you go to the site, and, and her last name is D-W-E-C-K, if you go to that site, then her more recent book will be um, listed there. In fact, I have been told very, very recently that there is an online site titled um, growthmindsettools.com. And these are strategies, from what I understand, that we could use in the classroom. I shouldn't recommend something I haven't looked at myself, but I've heard that it's really good. Michelle, this is what directly relative to work we're doing around addressing client self-efficacy and self-regulation. Thank you. Michelle, that makes my day because uh, I, I do try to make the presentation and the work relevant to um, everyone, whether they're a classroom teacher or um, working with uh, clients. So I'm really, really glad. I'm happy for that feedback, and I appreciate it. Oh, Melanie, thank you for mentioning Carol Dweck's videos. They are really, really good. And, and again, Carol Dweck uh, provides one piece of the puzzle. When we think about motivation, what we realize, when we read about the concepts, we realize that motivation is a huge puzzle and there are thousands and thousands of pieces. But Carol Dweck really does provide one of those pieces of the puzzle. I mentioned her name several times. There are many other areas of research that I could have mentioned, Bandura, on and on and on. But she's very current and uh, very impressive. Um, a, I like her. I'm sorry. I've got a question from the from the other room um, asking it with regards to rewards. Does it decrease the effectiveness of a reward if the person is ahead of time that the cycle will be planned, work, celebrate? Could you repeat that, David? I heard the first part, but not the second part. So regarding awards, or rewards, rather, does it decrease the effectiveness of the reward if the person knows ahead of time that the cycle will be planned, work, celebrate? That's, that's a great question, and the answer is yes because then it becomes a contingency reward. The most effective celebratory rewards are spontaneous, according to the researchers that I read. And of course, there are some researchers who have a totally different take on this. But the majority of the researchers um, suggest that when we walk in, I'll use a classroom example. If I walk in and say, everybody has been present every day this week, Let's celebrate. You have five extra minutes to talk to your friends. That is more effective than if I were to say, you know what, if everybody shows up every day, then I'll, I'll give you five minutes to talk. Then it becomes a contingency reward. 
Um, and I have experienced contingency rewards actually extinguishing motivation. Several years ago, I was helping Ruby Payne to write some simulations, and I had a niece who loved to play the what she called the teacher game. One weekend, I needed for someone to uh, play the simulation, let me know about any glitches. I called her, asked her to play. I said, if you play the game this weekend, I'll give you $20. She said, okay. So she played the game, told me about the glitches. When the next one was available, I called her. Kayla, do you want, I have a new teacher game. Do you want to play? She asked, are you going to pay me $20? I said, no, honey, it's just for fun. She said, no, I don't want to play. And she never asked to play the teacher game again. And she, she helped me to realize that what the research tells us is true. When uh, the behavior is already established and we start rewarding that behavior that is already established, then when we remove the reward, the person is asking, well, why should I continue? I have no reason to continue. But celebratory rewards are spontaneous, they're unexpected, and then the person is thinking, wow, what a treat. I might continue to try to work hard. Did that help? That's great. Okay. And I see that Bill is commenting that um, I'm wondering how the rewards aspect relates to the getting ahead type. But okay, Bill, I am so glad you asked this. Rewards are different from pay. The when the stipends that we, we give to people with the getting ahead uh, is similar to the pay that you and I receive. And what is happening with the stipends is we're saying that, that we're giving you this for your work. That's very different from contingency rewards uh, or, or from uh, celebratory rewards. Uh, the type of reward that you give in Bridges and that our bosses give us for reworking are very, very different from contingency rewards. That they're pay, they're exchange for service that we provide. And I'm really, really glad you asked that because this in no way takes away from stipends or, or, or the value of pay. Thank you, Bill, for asking that question. Thank you, and and uh, yes, great point. It is really, really important to stress this work aspect in the beginning. You know, participants, you're working, and this is doing two things. It is helping us to better define the stipend. You are receiving the stipend for your work, for your work. But we're also helping individuals to acquire work as a driving force. And if they don't receive a stipend, if they're not paid for their work, then um, it's more difficult for them to see the value of work. But when they realize that this work is, uh, is a driving force in my life and I can achieve through work in addition to relationships, then they move toward um, work as a driving force. Uh, Patty, thank you for your question. The whole day training uh, encompasses what we talked about today at a much lower pace and with many, many more uh, strategies. Uh, we have many strategies that we include, and some of the ones that we included today are covered in much more detail. So what, what we did today was to uh, just extract an hour's worth uh, from the whole day. But um, the self-regulation, for example, I talked for an hour 
about the self-regulatory skills. We talk for about a half an hour on self-efficacy and the reality that we're working with some individuals who are capable. They have competence. They just don't know it. And they've been led to believe that they lack ability. Rhonda asked that we repeat the statement about giving reward that the behavior is already established. This reminds me of how we reward students for perfect attendance and how we can do more of celebratory rewards for them. Great point, Rhonda. And um, I, I'm really, really glad you asked about rewards again because I, we're in no way saying that rewards are a bad thing. They are not. But what we're saying is that there are different types of rewards. And when we want to increase, enhance a person's motivation, then celebratory rewards can occur accomplish that goal. Now, when we really need for people to perform certain tasks, contingency rewards might be the best bet in order to get it done. But when motivation is an issue, then celebratory rewards are the way to go. But thank you for that comment. I'd like to thank you folks for, for joining us. Um, for those of you who will be joining us for more webinars, uh, we'll see you then. For the rest of you, hope you have a great uh, weekend, great afternoon. Thanks, folks. Thank you, everyone. This has been an AHA Process webinar podcast. Visit ahaprocess.com for more. Royalty-free music courtesy of sound.com.